Titanic with Adam Curry. It is August 14th, 2019, and I chose uh, this one just for you, Steve. Do you recognize uh, this piece of music? Is it Chopin? No, it's Rach- Rachmaninoff. Rachmaninoff? Yeah. I played one of the two. I didn't play that one. Thank you. <laughs> it's a, it's, it gets kind of complicated, that piece, after a while. <laughs> no. As you know, I prefer, and you prefer rock and roll, so it's... Yes, this is true. Uh, Steve, uh, I'm so happy that you uh, have some time to, to chat about a couple of current events. For people who have never uh, heard of you, and it would be easy to read the Wikipedia. I don't find Wikipedia to be very uh, accurate or uh, reliable. It, what would you give as your brief credentials so people understand where you're coming from? My brief credentials went to Cornell undergraduate, Cornell Medical School. Uh, I was drafted. Then uh, the arrangement I went with the military was you pay for me and my residency at Harvard. At the same time, I went to MIT, a PhD in international relations, trained by DARPA and the CIA, was proud of that. And then I served in our country from the Nixon, Ford, Reagan, Clinton, uh, uh, Carter administration, and then Bush Sr. And then I remained as a kind of senior advisor unofficial to the Department of Defense till now. And, yeah, and what would you? What I do. And what would you say is your is your main expertise? I think my main expertise, like yours, is really intuiting and understanding what's going on in the uh, dynamics of a nation as well as international politics. I have a sense of both the people and the countries, in part trained by Lucian Pai and others, Ithiel de Solopool at MIT, and they reinforce that. So what I would say is kind of politics and personality which was something uh, Harold Laswell in the 1920s wrote a textbook on it. And I thought I was the new kid on the block, but it turned out he was really writing a brilliant book called Psychopathology and Politics at a place where I trained St. Elizabeth's Hospital in Washington. You know, um, we've known each other for uh, for over a year now, I think, and we've talked a couple times. And uh, we, actually, we talk regularly on the phone just to, to update each other. Um, you, and it's, I, I love talking to you because your credentials just show that you have standing in so many areas. But if I repeat any of what we ever discuss, people look at me like my hair is on fire. Well, you know, the reason you and I get along very well is because you're part of the tradition I was part of, uh, the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, uh, CIA, uh, secretaries of state, and, and you understand the world in a way that many Americans don't, not because they're ignorant, they just never had that experience, but you understand the manifest content and you understand the latent. What I mean by the manifest is what's actually happening on the surface, but you're able to go back and say, you know, there's something else going beneath this. <laughs> and, and you and I can talk about that in a way that it doesn't surprise you. So when we say something looks like a conspiracy, you and I know we're going to be labeled conspiracy, uh, conspirators, but that's not what it means. We know in effect that the government will do things that the American public can't believe or, you know, is totally uh, taken aback that something like that would happen, including what we'll get into right now is Jeffrey Epstein. 
You know, yes. oh, are we are we shocked at him that <laughs> oh my god, oh my god, I, I write novels and, and if I had put in this episode and uh, I it would have it would have been rejected as unbelievably stupid. <laughs> oh, I mean my editor would have said, What are you kidding me? The guy committed suicide, he was all alone, and you say now they're gonna do an autopsy and a non existent I would have been thrown right out of the publishing company, St. Martin's or whatever, and, and they would be right. But you and I understand that this is a far greater issue than Epstein. This was the real issue, as you and I talked about it, that he belonged to an intelligence unit, part of the CIA and also the Mossad, working closely with the CIA. And that's not something that comes out of the air. Uh, Americans have to understand that the Mossad and the CIA go back to probably the late 40s, early 50s, when a gentleman by the name of James Jesus Angleton, who was a brilliant uh, operative in counterintelligence in the CIA, really worked uh, effectively with the Mossad. And if you see the movie The Good Shepherd, the De Niro, you see uh, the fact you see the development of that CIA. So when, in fact, Jeffrey Epstein uh, was accused and correctly so of pedophilia, what really was happening, it was a honey trap. And you I, and I understand what a honey trap is. For the public, we basically have to explain that a honey trap is used by the CIA, Mossad, the Russians, anybody, in order to entice a man or a woman to be vulnerable and seductive. Where the boundaries are violated is when you use children and pedophilia. And that's what got me angry. And that's where you and I began to discuss saying, look, this is not acceptable. You can't have teenagers, you can't have 14 year olds, 15 years old, used as an asset for any intelligence service, be it the Israeli one, the CIA, or even the Russians or whoever it might be out there. And, and I, I was going to say, yeah, I was going to say, I always like to, to tell people that when it comes to pedophile rings, it's very difficult for people to understand that this exists and that it's real and how vast the scale is. And I always say, well, you know what? That's what everyone said about the Catholic priests. And by the way, everyone pretty much got off. That's what everyone said about Jim will fix it, Jimmy Savile in uh, in the UK. And everyone said, ah, oh, that can't be. But it turns out it's true. What's amazing to me is that people don't have this in their mind. And it's some kind of psychological trick, particularly with the Catholic priests, that people just like, man, yeah, whatever, we just let it go. Black box, don't understand it. Adam, you hit it on the head. What, what, it's basically a dynamic that's very simple. What we say, it's called denial. And denial is not a river in Egypt. <laughs> denial means we can't accept it because, in effect, if we begin to understand how perverse it is, and that's why you got a woman like Ghislaine Maxwell, who was involved in sadomasochistic practices in times of in terrorizing these little girls who are 14, 15, and 16. It was a pimp and a prostitute. There's nothing really uh, legitimate about her. She's a disgusting individual. So what happens when you open up the borders or the dy dynamics of pedophilia, you get into an area that most people don't want to understand. They don't want to take the burden of understanding because the notion that you can play with young children, even infants, is, is abhorrent. And so once you begin to understand that, you and I know, Adam, you t have to take the responsibility to say, well, what do we do about it? Right. And that's where most people don't want to get involved. But you're absolutely correct. Pedophilia has been around for thousands of years. It has been an entrapment and a dynamic which 
we in the Judeo-Christian and even Muslim world really don't accept that as such. So you're correct. It's it's hard to accept. Now, as a uh, uh, your training would allow you to understand the profile of a pedophile, I, I wouldn't mind having a backgrounder on that, if there is one. Well, the profile is one that they call aggression. But in the case of Jeff Epstein, it's it's much more serious. What you have is what we call borderline personalities. That is the dynamic of somebody who's in between neurosis and psychosis. For example, Epstein was a poor little Jewish boy whose narcissism was totally out of control, what we would call malignant narcissism. That's what's a, what Trump is accused of, but he doesn't have that kind of dynamic, quite frankly. And in fact, his self-aggrandizement, his sense of self, was manipulated by both the Israelis and the CIA to be utilized in a way that they could compromise intellectuals, politicians, Bill Richardson, Harvard, MIT, Minsky. I mean, a whole bunch of guys, George Church at CRISPR. I mean, this was a guy who could manipulate and be manipulated and act as if, and that's the key point here, as if personality and borderline, as if he were really intelligent and was part of the Harvard uh, community when in fact he couldn't get into Harvard, he couldn't get into anywhere. Cooper's Union is not a great university, he never finished it. At the same time, you have Ghislaine Maxwell, another borderline who is a total sociopath, just like Jeff Epstein, the daughter of the one of the largest sociopaths, and I don't want to use the word here, bullshitters in the world, that was Maxwell who came out of the war and the Holocaust as a Czech refugee and, and, and started to use money and became such a wealthy uh, publisher that he went bankrupt. In other words, there was nothing to him. There's nothing to Giselle uh, uh, Maxwell other than her borderline personality, her narcissism, her sadomasochism. And in, in a simple word, in the Judeo-Christian say, we would say she's evil. And yeah. so is Epstein. But that's a little bit too simple because in the psychiatric terms, we would say, uh, oh, I'm sorry, there's a block. In psychiatric terms, we use a lot of fancy words. But the key here, I'm not somebody who's going to uh, give, allow them to act in a way that their dynamics force them to act. In other words, this is not a legitimate excuse. They can be everything I told you about. They're, they're, they're sick. But in terms of their sickness, they utilized it very effectively to do what they needed to do, which was to compromise politicians, Richardson, Mitchell, a whole bunch of people, the Clintons. And they used it effectively for the resources of the CIA, Mossad and other intelligence units. Now, since we'll be talking about a lot of different people, um, I don't know what the percentages of a borderline personality, uh, how many out of 100 have this, uh, if it if everyone has it inherently so that it can be exploited, because what we're seeing is a large amount of entertainment and politician and other high profile people. I think it may have something to do with fame, narcissism, etc., cetera, who, uh, who can be compromised through this mechanism. Yeah. Let, let me just say borderline is not a, a majority uh, dynamic. It's a dynamic. I like 
uh, doctors like myself who had to hospitalize them either at uh, St. Elizabeth's or at Harvard, Mass Mental Health, what you find is that they have a very distinct personality. They can mold themselves as to what they need to be for the moment. They have no mm. sense of a superego. Namely, she has no desire to stop any of her vicious behaviors to a 14-year-old, 15, 16. Neither does uh, Epstein. So in turn, what they do is they're able to be sycophants, and that is important. The as-if personality allows them to become manipulative, sadistic, and find the weakness in other people. So they can go to people at MIT like Minsky or uh, the head of CRISPR, George Church, who wants to have all these grants and wants to be associated with millionaires and billionaires in the name of money. So what you see is not the borderline of the uh, the the object, either the churches or the Minsky's or the Mitchell's or the Richardson's, what you see is the fact that these borderlines are able to manipulate narcissistic people who in turn want to have money for their grandiosity. So what it does is ironically, and this is why I've hit Harvard and MIT and Stanford uh, schools that I had attended, except for Stanford, but I knew them well, is that academia has become a legitimate format for sycophants. In other words, when you become a tenured professor, not only do you get a salary, not only can you not fire them, but at the same time, you've got a union. So what happens is that as a tenured professor and you're supposedly important and you feel like Minsky was on cognitive theory, what happens then is they're willing to do anything they need to do in order to garner more money for their theoretical experiments, be it whatever. That's not going to happen in the 21st century. With the advent of the Internet and the fact that we have all these people now who can effectively denationalize or what, we, what I would call destabilize uh, a lot of the systems, academia will find itself less and less relevant. It can only be relevant as it comes on the Internet, like MIT that dumped its courses. But the Harvards and the MIT degrees don't mean anything anymore. And eventually they will understand that. But the presidents of these institutions think they're above reproach, as do the academics. And that's what made Epstein and Maxwell very effective. You also have to remember they were the Bronfman daughters who were also the daughters of a famous criminal. Bronfman, who started Seagram's. He, he, was, he was bootlegging up to Canada and then from Canada back to the U.S., correct? Right. That was part of Maya Lansky, Luciano gang in Cleveland, where they were bootlegging the alcohol out of Canada right back down into the United States. But their father, this Maxwell family, uh, the uh, Bronfman family, his, her, his father, her, their father is the head of the World Jewish Congress. So you begin to see that these poor Jewish people who came out of a background of poverty, ignorance and uh a desire to achieve really went into the criminal world as, in part because they had to, but they continued that criminality in a way that was not appropriate or justified. Now, you mentioned a number of people who I stumbled upon uh, earlier this week. as um, When the news broke of the uh, alleged suicide of Jeffrey Epstein, the first, uh, except for the New York Post, the first reporting went through ABC. And ABC did something that caught my eye. 
um, for as long as Epstein's been in the news, it's been uh, billionaire financier, billionaire hedge fund manager, billionaire this, billionaire that. ABC, all of a sudden, and not just on television, but in all of their uh, printed articles online, as if it was part of the mm, style guide internally, started using the term mega millionaire. And mega millionaire, I believe, refers, if it is a code of any sort, I don't know, I just found it strange, but I did immediately stumble upon the mega group, uh, which includes a number of the people you just mentioned. This was a group of very wealthy businessmen. Maxwell was in there. Uh, Meyer Lansky was in there. The Bronfen was in there. And, uh, and they made no secrets about their group, and they were known as the mega group. And Epstein, apparently... Uh, was brought in when um uh what's the the l brands uh um his name is evading me for a moment what you're getting at is really the beginning of what happened of the poor jewish immigrants who came to the united states they couldn't borrow money uh the wasps or Citibank or the regular banks carnegie wouldn't let them money so a guy like meyer lansky longies willman and uh, Luciano created what they called their own business, so the, the, the cartel from their point of view. In turn, what happened is people like who came into uh, Drexel Burnham. Drexel Burnham was created. It unfortunately went under because Izzy Burnham, as I explained to him, you can't put a guy like Mike Milken on the front page of the Time magazine making $600 million. And he said to me, no, no, we're fine. We have a lawyer. And I said, look, I'm in the uh, Bush senior administration here, we got a young lawyer by the name of Giuliani, makes $65,000, and he's going to take you down. So that notion that you were vulnerable within that system, including the Bronfman's, was totally alien. At the same time, you had uh, a, a, a few, a bunch of other ones, Bear Stearns, that went under. It was not an accident that legitimately they couldn't make money. But the guys who left Bear Stearns and who left Drexel Burnham, they then went on to do high hedge fund management or what we call, you know, high tech uh, investments. What they really do, and it's not a very clever or brilliant way to make money, basically what they charge was about – 5% over the total fund, that means if you got a couple of billion dollars, that's a couple of hundred million that you have. You don't do anything for it. And then you take what's called a 20% carried interest, right. which means that if you make any profits, 20. So what you had is all these mega millionaires who really weren't all that well-educated. They had a pretense to be better than they was. And basically, unfortunately, their kids turned out to be as bad as they have in this particular case, the Maxwell and the Bronfman's really turned out to be despicable. And on that level, that's where the accountability has to come in. So I'm not sure exactly where you want to start, but I'd like to just eliminate one, one issue from the equation, uh, which would be that this wasn't a suicide and a possible extraction. The only reason I bring it up, the only reason is if I were to extract someone and take them to, say, Israel, I certainly would make sure there was some kind of panic at Ben Gurion Airport and that the baggage system didn't work for 10 hours. But I'm, I'm already seeing that you are not buying into an extraction. Well, that's not necessarily so. You've got to remember we had a power outage on the west side yes. of New York. And those things, you know, you can talk about it. But in reality, three things happened that gave me a clue that this was 
more of an extraction or Epstein was far more involved in the intelligence community. Number one, we had a guy, uh, a gentleman, Vice Admiral McGuire, who came in to be the director of the DNI. That was a couple of days ago. Yes. In turn, when I looked at it, the person who was supposed to be the director of the DNI, Susan Gordon, who may be Jewish or not, but she was very close to John Brennan, whom Trump does not trust, neither do I. And in turn, what that meant is the CIA was going to be taken over, as well as the DNI, by military intelligence, to which I have a stronger affiliation than the civilians, as you know. Yes. The third thing that happened, and it was totally by chance, uh, John Huntsman, Ambassador Huntsman from Russia, uh, resigned a few days just after uh, Epstein was arrested. And I said, that is bizarre. Now, I've known Huntsman. He's a good man. He's a Mormon, has nothing to do with anything there. But then I realized, whoa, he may have been compromised along with mm. the other major politicians who were not Jewish, who were Mitchell. You've got all kinds of politics. Bill Richardson from New Mexico. So I do believe there was an extraction simply by the fact that you had a delay of one to two days when the storyline was so bizarre. And I was going to say, oh, well, he hung himself and I want to see the autopsy. And in fact, like 9-11, this was all just uh, calibrated before. And you had a, a, a narrative which really doesn't make sense. And, and most people would be laughing. But I would be surprised if he were not alive and he was sent somewhere else. And in turn, what happens is that Maxwell and the Bronfmans and others will have to be held accountable. As for him, that's where I begin to say, look, he was part of the CIA. He was part of the Mossad. Some of these people are going to have to be accountable in our intelligence service. But as you know well, they never are. So now uh, his, uh, his madam, his pimp, his uh, accomplice, Ghislaine Maxwell, is apparently missing. I mean, we could. We don't even need to go through what everybody is already doing. Is looking at. We are. Where were the guards? Where's the videotape? Like, no, you're never gonna see it. That's the end of that. We'll have a. We'll have a commission report, and you know, it'll be full of bull crap. We've been through that. It doesn't matter, dead or alive, he's out of the picture. Uh, but so all eyes are focused now on Gisele Maxwell, and she apparently is unfindable. Surprise. I mean, that's part of the storyline. Again, Adam, if you and I were to write this storyline, we would have been thrown out of public <laughs> right away because it's not credible. I mean, the entire audience understands this is a joke. This is a really sick joke. And they're not going to find her. And if they do again, she may be dead or she drowned. You know, the the uh, the point of fact, what I'm trying to get across is despite these intelligence systems that we have, they're not really all that good at creating narratives or scenarios. And in fact, what you're really beginning to see is what's wrong with our intelligence, the CIA, military intelligence. We have 16 units, different units of intelligence that have to report to the DNI. That's absurd. And at the same time, the Mossad that loves to write about themselves have movies. They're really not very bright. I've known them. I've taken away some of the Mossads. I put one or two in prison after 9-11. And I warned one of the chiefs of Mossad, you come again and you do what you did in 9-11. You're going to see what how lethal I can become. And they know what I did. And so, uh, in effect... What you're seeing is really the malfunction or the dysfunctional elements of all our intelligence systems. 
And and we have bigger problems than than Epstein. But I didn't know she was found missing. But I'm not surprised. Yeah, and and someone else. I I don't expect for her to turn up at all. If maybe uh, dead. Um. So there's apparently, I guess, evidence that was that's been collected at least at uh, Epstein's New York. You're <laughs> you're laughing already. Evidence, evidence. What evidence? Adam, Adam, this is, this reminds me like the ending in Casablanca, where, you know, the French policeman goes up to Rick and he said, Rick, I'm shocked. This is a casino. Here. Would you mind giving me my 40,000 euros? And by the way, we'll round out the usual suspects. So you see this ending in the Epstein film, the Casablanca. It's absurd. I mean, you can't make a movie out of it. It really denigrates both the president and, quite frankly, William Barr, who I had a lot of respect for. But any notion that you're going to have a, a justice or, you know, any sense of we're going to clear this up, it's absurd. And, and it's just a distraction for many other things going on. So, so putting a lot of things together, I see Hillary Clinton not winning the presidency. I see Epstein stumbling, getting rolled up. It feels like a crack in the protection racket. Yeah. Literally, they would be on crack. <laughs> it's more serious than that, Adam. They're on crack to create this kind of scenario. Honestly, it is the most bizarre, pathetic absurd scenario that you and I or anybody in the business could have thought of. And in a way, it's an indictment of their imagination and their credibility. So, you know, you have to leave it. I can't even monitor it anymore. It's such a joke. So what so what is going on and who's in danger of being exposed at this point? At this point, in terms of the Epstein I don't really know. Well, you've got Richardson, you've got Mitchell, he's dead already. You've got a lot of academics who went to Harvard and MIT who are going to be compromised. You're going to have, I don't want to go into the names because they'll come out eventually. So I don't want to play jacques beforehand. So these people, they're going to worry. I mean, what's really happening is as a result of of what Trump has done, He has basically allowed fear to permeate throughout the pedophilia system, as well as this, uh, you know, uh, this honey wagon that wasn't really a very effective. So is this what we call draining the swamp then? It's part of the draining of the swamp. Uh, There was uh, some evidence to consider that he was going to go after pedophiliacs and and that was evident a couple of years ago, but to the degree to which he's done it is quite impressive. And so he is just playing along and he's going to see what happens. But I'm very impressed that he charged them not on intelligence problems, but they charged them on pedophilia. And that's what he will go after. And I think there will be quite a few people coming out and you will have a lot of time for other shows to talk about these pedophilias. But for the most part, it's pathetic. You're talking about Prince Andrews of England. I mean, MI6 knew about it. They, they could have done something to stop Prince Andrews. But again, that whole family is not exactly a sterling family. The Windsors aren't really British. No, they're, they're German. Ch- they changed their name. Right. And they changed their name 
animal to the absurd part where Windsor's the name of the castle. Yeah. That's not the name of the family. <laughs> so when you're not smart enough, which they're not, it's not a very bright family, but it is a very, uh, it's a family that's quite rapacious in absorbing the monies from their own people. And I think what's happening in England with Boris Johnson, another Jewish boy who grew up on the east side and, and went to Israel, you're going to see a disaster going on. And that primarily is what's happening right now is Brexit or the impending Brexit is coming forth and we see the economy of Europe starting to drop very rapidly. Before we get into more of those meta sure. issues, um, sure. just going back and looking at all of the names, all and in particular, uh, academia, Harvard, um, yeah. again, show business politics, one uh, gaping hole is the technology industry. And the more I look into relationships between um, Maxwell between CIA, Silicon Valley. One name keeps popping up over and over again. It was a real dirty business with the Inslaw Corporation. And this is the Promise software package, which is a whole, we don't have to get into it. It's a whole long backstory about, you know, this was basically the, uh, the, the, the mega database that could connect to anything and mainly financial systems. And once you have someone's financial information, you can pretty much track their entire lives. There's rumor that this has now spilled over into Peter Thiel's uh, Planeteer. But bodies have been found over this software alone. And Maxwell pops up. He apparently was selling this software on behalf of Mossad with a, a special backdoor. Um, is Silicon Valley still entrenched in all of this? They're very much entrenched, contrary to what they would like to believe. Uh, they receive huge contracts from both the CIA and the military to basically work on cyber systems, cyber command. Promise was clearly something that, uh, you're right, it was highly compromised. Maxwell was involved, as were other people. But in the high-tech business, you got Bill Gates, highly compromised by Epstein, Bill Gates and the Gates Foundation, which in principle was to improve a lot of young women. And in fact, it turned out that Gates and his wife really consorted with a pedophiliac, knowing very well he's a pedophiliac. So you have Bill Gates, you have a whole bunch of others, you know, Zuckerberg, probably a whole bunch of the others who, like anybody else, they're sycophants. They want to have more money for their particular invention. What they don't begin to understand is that cyber command and cyber communication was not initiated by Maxwell or even the Israelis. It was initiated, if I was learning that at MIT in 1972, you can well believe that the American government had this way back in the 50s and the 60s. And at MIT, we were learning from DARPA and the CIA, the internet and social media. Yeah, that there were a lot, I, I read about a lot of social uh, they didn't call it social media, but social experiments in connected networks. This is DARPA research from the 60s. Correct. And you hit it on the head, as you know very well. So as a result of my own tutelage and my own learning, I helped to create uh, with Clancy, but others, the Netforce series by Tom Clancy. Now, unfortunately, or fortunately, we were about 20 years ahead of its time. So when, 
when I was brought in back into intelligence, somebody had asked me, a, a major gen a general who I admire quite a lot, he said, well, how did you come to the notion of cyber command, cyber terrorism, net force? Because when I postulated that 30 years ago, they, they had no concept of a net force. The FBI was not involved. The military was not involved. I said, well, it's a simple extraction. And I think what you're seeing now, Adam, and I think what your audience is seeing now, and we're, we're witnessing it, it's the devolution <coughs> excuse me, of power on the federal level. And what is really happening, even though Trump is doing the, you know, the Twitter and all that, what he's really demonstrating is we no longer are in a business where I need congressmen, senators, I need representatives. Those days are gone. What's happening is the devolution of power is going from the north, northeast, the Midwest into the south, Florida, Texas, North Carolina, South Carolina, where we have businesses and where we are intensely involved in business practices, which are not usually underwritten by the government. But the government's giving out a $10 billion contract Probably to, you know, one of the high tech guys. Are they compromised? Yes, but they don't care. And that is part of the problem. Most people really don't care. And, and for the simple reason, Adam, if you could tell me which individual was ever put to prison for 9-11, a false flag, Sandy Hook, Newtown, which which administrative official was ever put into prison? I would say to you, that's great, mm -hmm. but I don't have any precursors. I don't have prima facie evidence that our government is capable of arresting its own people. And so I, what, like what, others, I would say, okay, let's go on to the next point. So what, 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 is, what I find interesting, what I'd like to be true is because of the internet, and I'm not talking about um, uh, Google, Facebook, uh, Twitter, etc. I'm talking about the pure network connectivity which breeds things such as, well, blockchain is one, of course, but uh, 4chan, 8chan, places that are not on the mainstream grid. Uh, my hope is that, what because you, you said about the, the power is moving away from, I'll just say, the government, it feels like, and even though we're mired in conspiracy and mis- and disinformation, it, it, it truly is starting to... Um, starting to spread to a point where the millennial generation, right now, you ask them today, Jeffrey Epstein, they're like, he didn't kill himself. Just because of how it's being uh, shaped and formed online, that can be true. It can be uh, nefarious actors can spread that quite easily. Uh, but it, the power shift, I think, is real. Um, or do you, is, there, is there a government or an entity that is ahead of this curve and is already shaping opinion as Google, I think, already can do in certain cases? Well, that's a good question. I don't think Google can do very much. The, the founder, a Russian Jew, we brought out of the Soviet Union, had I known that he would end up to be a fascist, I wouldn't have brought him back. The reality is that many of these entities begin to mirror the nation states that they fled or did not like. And the fascism, I mean, the politically correct language, all of that nonsense that's the surface problem. Right. Underneath it all, what they really have, and it's what you said, they cannot control. It doesn't take very much for anonymous to take down the entire system if they wanted to. Right. Google, YouTube, right. or whatever, as you pointed out. The reality is that the power is no longer centralized. And what we have, and you see it in, in a governor like DeSantis in Florida, 
who was a JAG officer in the SEAL teams and fought overseas, but he's going to say, okay, I want to find out what in fact happened here that my attorney general decades ago allowed Epstein to get off, and I want to know who this police chief was in Palm Beach County. So what happens is, and Adam Curry, and, and this is not flattery, it's a point of reality, is far more instructive and far more interesting and engaging than any show on CNN. I mean, what becomes important on CNN is unfortunately when Chris Como <laughs> Fredo, <laughs> and he says, don't call me Fredo. I mean, and I said, whoa, this was amazing because in effect, the storylines are no longer controlled by any individual. As long as you have an iPhone, you create your own storyline. And, and, exactly. and this is true of my own uh, my own background and my own profession. You know, why am I writing novels? It's outdated. I mean, one of the things I have to do as opposed to what you do is I, I do five minute videos. If I do anything more than five minutes, people are gonna tune out. I'm amazed they even wanna listen to me if they do listen to me here. But that's why Moni Moni and those kind of songs <laughs> in many ways, well, what I'm really bringing out is I grew up, as, although I had been a concert pianist, the very nature of my intuition and intellect, believe it or not, is really rock and roll. And rock and roll is the African-American equivalent of what came out. I came out of Harlem, but it is really, in a way, the manifest destiny of where we are now. Every one of those singers that we talk, Little Richard, Chubby Check, or whatever, when they were pronouncing and making pronouncements, we now have short little themes that are very much along Moni Moni, which has its own meaning, or, you know, Long, uh, you know, uh, long tongue Sally. I mean, now we're getting into a world that mirrored very much the language of the 50s, 60s and 70s when people would say, oh, well, what does that mean? You know, uh, uh, whatever, you know, uh, and I'm, I'm thinking of some tunes, but you and I understand that in rock and roll, there were a lot of coded messages. And in fact, when people call Trump a racist, I'm saying, what? Does anybody hear the, the, the African-American hip-hop songs? They're totally racist. They have the, the N-word, they have whores, they have all kinds of self-accusations, which is far more racist than any American or white or anybody else could even imagine. So it becomes a farce what we begin to see on the national level and what, the, what Wikipedia or the New York Times covers. And, and so my interest was, Oh, well, how is the New York Times going to cover this absence or the, the uh, suicide of Epstein? Oh, my God. They did convolutions. The guy wasn't there. The, the, there weren't watchers. It was a, a cell. I mean, it was it's absurd. It's the theater of the absurd. So what happens in the process of devolution of power on the national level is the devolution of credibility of the New York Times, the, the, the networks, they're losing people. And then what happens is a guy like Adam Curry comes in and another guy's name, what's his name? Steve Pizanik or Pichenik comes in. <laughs> and, well, but that's the point. And, and with five minutes or an hour of your time, we can denigrate anything they want. And they can say, well, oh, no, he, he hung himself. We're doing an autopsy. Really? Yeah. <laughs> we need more information before we can release the results. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Hilarious. I mean, it is hilarious. So 
on the level where we can be hilarious and we can do all kinds of things where we feel because you and I don't take ourselves seriously, but we take what we do seriously. Then you begin to realize, well, you know, what's a politician? You really going to have a person self-aggrandize and at the end point, what, what does he or she do? What do they do? They say, you know, why don't you invest in me, invest in me, I'm going to do great things. And the fact is, none of them built a business. None of them has have done anything that was creative, except for a guy named Trump, who they think is crazy, narcissistic. And I say, oh, that's great. Well, give me more presidents like that, because if you hadn't been in New York, if you think he's a racist, then you better understand what growing up in New York means. You've got African-Americans, you've got Hispanics, we got Muslims, we got everything. We have Cuban Jews like me called Jubans. So if you think you're growing up in New York as a racist, forget about it. If you think Trump can't create a business, then explain to me how he did Woman Memorial for all of the kids, including my children, and it was for free, ice skating. Mm -hmm. Then how did he do a hotel at 42nd Street, the Commodore, and took it down and made it a key center of improvement? And how did he do the Trump Towers? Let, let me see one other president. I don't care, Republican or Democrat, who's built a business or built a building. And the answer is none of them. Well, I always say that um, I've, I have definitely, certainly in Europe, have traveled in uh, or been in elitist circles for a little bit when I was just, you know, I had a lot of money at the time. Uh, I was well known. I got invited to things. And I, I was like, I looking around going, uh, this is not my world. These people are all nincompoops and they're nut jobs and they're, they're over the top with their own elitist. It's, I don't know exactly which term to use, but there was always one or two guys um, like Trump who had the money, had the standing to be in the group, but didn't fit in the group, was crass, spoke coarsely, and they accepted him because of his wealth. Uh, his, uh, yeah, it's only been men that I've seen. Um, but when it comes down to it, they shun him. Like, you're not really a part of the group. And wait a minute, now you're president? That, that, no, 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 this, this can't be because it should be from our circle, the real people in our circle. But this is a human trait, I guess. When, when, you, when you're elevated, I, I've been very famous... And I see the trappings. Now, I, luckily, at the time, I was married to a woman who uh, kept me on a very short lease, very smartly so, and I never went anywhere. And, and so I, I, I didn't get compromised. But I think I would have been long dead if, if I had not, if I'd just been let roam free. Well, I'm not sure about that. I'm a, clearly, I don't, I'm not going to analyze you, but knowing a little bit about your family and your background, uh, you are far more anchored than you're even aware of. And the reason for that, I won't go into it, but you understand what your background was. You understand the, the, the commitment your family made to our country. And that was a very important dynamic. As for fame, you know, I, I can't, you know, I, if somebody says, are you this or that? I mean, I look at myself and I say, look, I am who I am. I don't even care about what the fame is about. I mean, I've been uh, in, in, I was invited into the very prestigious Council on Foreign Relations, which is the CFR, the inner government, so to speak. And at a very early age, and quite frankly, as nice as they are and as uh, whatever they do, I said, I don't belong here. And, and quite frankly, everybody thinks I'm academically oriented because I went to these schools. And the answer is no, no. 
I'm just a kid from Harlem who happened to enjoy what I was doing. And the kind of stuff that I do, I really don't want to spend time talking to others. I'm not interested in what you would call, it's their narcissism, the self-aggrandizement. Well, I'm a professor of this and that. Well, good for you. I'm, I'm really not that interested in right. it. Uh, you know, if you think you're that important, then good luck. I'm, I'm really not going to spend my time. And the other part of it was... I had the good fortune or the misfortune to be an executive producer of a TV show. And boy, does that teach you about narcissism <laughs> and, you know, out of control behavior. And I'll never forget one of the actresses said to me, oh, you're a psychiatrist. You're here. You'll understand what we're talking about, what we feel. And I said, lady, forget about it. I'm going into every one of your honey wagons. I'm throwing out anything white powder. I'm going to throw out anything you do. You go out of line, you go over budget and you go under, over time. I will throw you off the set. They didn't believe me until I fired a few people and then they got it. But I came in a rent a wreck and, and terrible clothing that they didn't think an executive producer was. And quite frankly, it was helpful because then the mob owned my honey wagons. And, you know, instead they brought up some guy named Vinny who told me this is about my wife and I own these honey wagons. And thanked the fact that I grew up in New York and I knew members of the mob. I said, oh, sure, Vinny, why don't you go back? And talk to some people in New Jersey and then come back. But you're going to leave Los Angeles. I'm going to break the unions and you're going to go to Frederick, uh, Virginia and Petersburg, Virginia. And we're going to shoot there. And he said, no, we can't do that. I said, you just talk to the people. And the next day he said, oh, Dr. Pachenik, he got it. Mm -hmm. So when you're not taking yourself seriously, but you use it in a way that's effective, as you're doing right now on the radio or what I do in writing, whether you like it or not. That's not my concern. Then you begin to understand, you know, you're not all that great. You know, we, we screw up. We mess up. I make mistakes. But I, I, what is it that you want me to say to anybody? I mean, do you, I'm not an academician. I really didn't have the patience to teach. I admire school teachers. I admire people who to teach. But you and I are basically kind of distributors of information as long as somebody else doesn't bother us. As for the elitism. When you work with different presidents and, you know, I've been honored to work Nixon, Ford, Reagan, Carter, not always directly with them. You one like me has the opportunity or the imperative, particularly in a case with Jimmy Carter. But, you know, Carter did one great thing, and that was the peace treaty in, in the Middle East. Nobody's ever accomplished that between Israel and Egypt. I mean, I had to override Jimmy Carter on a hostage situation. And I was threatened with insubordination and, and court martial. I was a Navy captain at the time, and I understood it. I said, no problem. But I'm going to have to work or save these hostages in the Hanafi Muslim. But it wasn't just me. It was Cullinane. It was Earl Silbert. It was a whole team. And, and what I like to do is even in the books, I like to thank the teams I'm with, you know, the military intelligence officers, the CIA. I mean, in a way, it's ironic. I mean, you know well about the CIA. But it, one, this organization, the Central Intelligence, they have tried to recruit me so many times. I feel like an unrequited, I feel like they're an unrequited lover. And I feel terrible because I said, I will work with you, but I don't want to be part your organization. And so I thank them for it. And in the same way, I thank military intelligence, but I really didn't want the pension. I didn't want the, 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 
the epaulets. I didn't want a promotion. And so my people or the people in the military and civilian intelligence, they were shocked. They said, what do you mean? You don't want money? You don't want any of this? I said, look, I came here as a refugee. You gave me an education. You gave me freedom. What else can I ask for? And I will in turn serve the country. So that gets us to the point, am I special? No. But my attitude towards the gratitude that I feel to this country, irrespective of Democrat, Republican, or the Epsteins, is so great that I'll say, okay, use me as you may want, or let me help you to resolve some problem overseas. If I make a mistake, I make, but you do not pay me. You do not pay for any of my expenses. And that's what happened to somebody like me and you. When you went back to this radio or the, you know, your radio station, you're in effect doing what I'm doing. You're informing the public. You're thanking the audience in this country for what they've given you and your family. And that's why you and I get along. We have a certain sense of gratitude, and it doesn't always come out. But from my point of view, I'm very grateful I'm an American. I'm not an Israeli. I'm not dual citizenship. You know, if I need a passport overseas, they know I have a Cuban passport, but I'm not Cuban. And I will do whatever's necessary to keep this country going as a republic. And now most people don't understand we are not a democracy. We are a republic. So when you have a president like Trump, Am I going to make the diagnosis that all of these uh, psychoanalysts did at Yale? No, because they don't know what they're talking about. Because basically, in reality, because I've also started up companies, as you have done, we, we, we don't mind losing. We don't mind failing. And that is the criteria for people like you and me. When you fail, you become humble. I mean, I may have done over 20 companies of which more than half I failed at. You know, that's such a good point is that if you have a history of trying things and actually failing, failing good, uh, that really builds you up. And a lot of people just fail and can move on and it's saved or whatever, and then they never really learn what it is. No, you hit it on the head, Adam, and I think that we're hitting on something quite important. Uh, You know, yeah, I go back to rock and roll because... That was my that was my America. Rock and roll to me is still very much of what the soul of this country is about, the revolutionary attitude of the words and the music. And so when I failed, what do I really listen to? I go back, I sit down and say, OK, let's start again. You know, here I am, a doctor and all that. I remember somebody saying to me, why are you pushing your paperback books? I said, what do you mean? Why am I pushing it? You're a physician. I said, yeah. So what is that supposed to do? And I said, look, I want to do paperback books. I don't want a hardback. I'm not going to be that great a writer. And I'm not really interested in going into the annals of literature. And I remember I had Phyllis Grant, a brilliant woman who's head of Putnam Berkeley. Brilliant. She said to me, we can't go into paperback. I said, Phyllis, I'm not going to go into hardback. I don't want to pay 17 bucks for the junk that I write. I'll pay, you know, five bucks for what I'm going to do, but I'm not going to be a major author. So, okay, well, I'm going to take back your advance. Anyway, the bottom line was by going into paperback and making sure I was that schlock paperback writer and being proud of it and hustling it at Sam's. We sold millions of copies, maybe 40 cents above the price. And she said, how did that happen? I said, well, Phyllis, you know, I'm not that's grandiose. I'm really not that interested in the New York Times reviewing me. I don't want that 30,000 extra to tell me that I can't be a writer. 
I'm a DOA. I'm dead on arrival. I mean, it doesn't matter to me. The point was it was a business. I built it. And then with Clancy Franchise, we built it. And I became a publisher. So you and I understand failure again and again. And then we come back to what people would consider success. But for you to be on radio as long as you have, they don't understand how many ways you had failed overseas and what you had done and what it means to have been so famous on MTV and then come down rapidly. And you and I share that background. Let's uh, move forward to devolution of power, uh, which I the completely I love the concept. I love the phrase. It's clearly happening. It must be happening everywhere. And I'd love to hear from you what you think is the most uh, interesting area where uh, devolution of power is at play. Probably right now. And, and I'm sorry it's happening in at Brexit in England. The reason I'm sorry is I made a statement about three years ago in one of my five-minute videos saying, look, Theresa May is not qualified. She might be a nice lady and all that, but I saw nothing in her to qualify her to do what I call multilateral negotiations. Now, you're talking about a country which I admire. England won the First World War, Second World War. They've been our greatest ally. You're talking about MI6, MI5, brilliant intelligence, Cambridge, Oxford. And here was a woman who I think was a social worker, with no offense, and she couldn't handle it. And then she had a second referendum, and I said, oh, no, this is not going to work. Then when Boris Johnson came in, be it whatever his dynamic is, which is grandiose, also a bullshitter, from New York, you know, went to Israel, whatever it is, I wish him the best. But I don't think within the next 50 or 60 days they're prepared to handle the devolution of power away from the EU into England as the pound is falling so rapidly and they may go into bankruptcy. At the same time, that devolution of power is forcing the financial experts, which was really the center of England, is London, where you have a 24-hour trading desk. They can't do that. Because, in effect, as they pull away from EU, the EU is going to demand billions of dollars as a divorce. Brussels really is not the front line of the EU. England forgets again their old enemy is Germany. It's the Frankfurt Bank of, of Germany that will determine whether England will or will not succeed. And I do not think Boris Johnson will be effective on October 1st. So that's one devolution of power. Then you see in China, there's a devolution of power, which is far more lethal. President Xi is literally sitting on a seesaw. And I've warned him in my videos, look, you want to use repression and you want to use Mao Zedong, a 1950s concept where Mao was not a great leader. He killed many Chinese, millions of Chinese. Look what's happening in Hong Kong. You're in effect defanging yourself because despite all of your forces, in the, on the Shenzhen, on, on the Guangzhou border of Hong Kong, you're not going to go in there and quell the revolution. And quite frankly, the Hong Kong children or the young people there, I admire what they did. It's a carryover from England. And they're forcing the Chinese to devolve part of their power because the minute Xi shows that he's ineffectual, that's it. The Chinese Politburo will not let him stay. Do you, I get the distinct feeling that uh, we're doing a bit of a, a Ukraine move on Hong Kong. I mean, I see American flags. I don't know how true these stories are. I see uh, embassy workers handing out uh, cookies, just like Victoria uh, Nuland, nay, Noodleman, 
used to do in uh, at the Maidan in Ukraine. It, it appears to me we clearly have had a hand in help fuel these protests to put pressure on uh, on uh, uh, Xi Adam, you're absolutely correct. I, I'm not going to say I know that I'm, I can't. And and basically, I'm I'm impressed by what we've done. And I think that <laughs> go very, us. Yes. Once again, <laughs> I mean, once again, because that was a brilliant maneuver, I would say it was a little overdone with the airport, but you can forgive them. And I think we have done an excellent job. And that's why the New York Times and other newspapers say, oh, well, uh, Trump hasn't said a word. He doesn't have to say a word. He's doing the action. The agency's doing it. I mean, other elements of our intelligence are effectively pushing on him. There is another problem that Xi will have, and that's the devolution of his own powers, that the economy in China, as I predicted, is not doing well. And the reason for that is Xi never really understood that the economy of China is artificial. It's not something that relates to our export, their exports or imports. What it really relates to is an internal credit system, which is artificially created and a, and a mathematical formula they won't follow, which is called mark to the market. In other words, everything that's worth $100 billion there is worth nothing because they've been refinanced so many times. They don't want to mark to the market that $100 billion is really worth $4.50. So everything is overinflated. The credit system is not working. Xi is using it. And at the same time, unemployment went right up in China the first time in five, six years. The growth rate went down to 4% from 6%. And you can be certain that the Chinese are lying at 4%. I suspect it's lower at 2 and 1. And at the same time, one enemy that he has to watch out for, it's not just us, the more lethal enemy in all of this is not the United States, it's India. Mm. And the man who runs India, Modi, has just shown how powerful he can be by basically eliminating the autonomy of Kashmir, forcing Pakistan to bring in thousands of troops on the eastern border of Kashmir. And Modi is saying, you know what? Nobody's going to bother me. The reason why Modi is very powerful and there's going to be a devolution of power in Pakistan is because Pakistan was never really a fully integrated country. It was a failed state. A state. And now under Khan, who's the famous cricket player or whatever, they are in bankruptcy and we have to extend them loans again. But again, it's so corrupt. It's so ineffective that the devolution of power is going away from Pakistan right into India. And India is saying, you know what? We got nuclear bombs. You have nuclear bombs. But I don't think you're going to use it. And by the way, we're going to test you because I'm going to take over Kashmir and you can't do anything about it. Now, why is Modi dangerous to China? <clears throat> if I want to put pressure on China, and let's say I've done it in the past indirectly, I will have the Indians work with Imbutan and basically start a small conflict with the PRC, the, the Chinese uh, uh, Guards Intelligence Service, and Butan in the Himalayas. This is where the where the water uh, where the main water supply is. Excuse me. Yes. Basically, what Modi is doing through and through our direction is basically saying, "Look, that water supply that you use in the Yellow River and the Yangtze that goes to the Ganges, and that's in Himalaya. 
you really think you want to fight with me? Let me show you what happens when I cut off that water supply and you have half a billion people without any water in the Gobi Desert. That becomes the real devolution of power in China and where China internally has to say to themselves, is this the best guy we've got? We're in the 21st century. I have young children. Most 40% of the Chinese are under the age of 30 and 40. And you've got an old fart there who believes in Mao Zedong, antiquated, doesn't understand modern theories. But China is in real trouble. India is the force that can help them. You have Pakistan devolution of power and you'll have other countries. Let me ask you a couple of questions about this specifically. So China um, it feels like this is a full-on assault. Uh, Modi would just visited Trump. Uh, they spoke publicly, specifically about the Kashmir region. Trump said, "Hey, you know, hey, let me know how I can help." So we're in bed together. That Pakistan uh, conflict not, is actually, Adam. I'm sorry to contradict you. We're not in bed. Uh, Trump has not. He has correctly decided. Look, I'm not going into bed to to negotiate this difference. What we've done is to send some senior people in the State Department. But for the most part, Modi said, you know what? Trump is busy with China. We got a tariff war going on. I'm going to do what I need to do. If you don't like it, too bad. We protested. Bolton had protested and and some of the other senior officials in the White House to no effect. Modi at this point has, what, a billion one People in India, they're growing. They have like 300,000 software engineers they produce a year. Many of them have become part of our culture and very effectively assimilated. And they also have the production capabilities. They can take a lot over from China. Exactly. And that that's what, exactly what's happening, Adam. Uh, India is taking over from China. At the same time, India has good relationships with Israel. Israel has good relationships, ironically, with Pakistan because it's a theocratic state and also with India. And Israel will supply them with the necessary weapons that they need. The real problem is, will they confront, will they engage in a nuclear war? My suspicion is no. Uh, that's my hope, but you never know what can trigger this off because they've been fighting over 75 years over Kashmir, low intensity conflict, but now it's becoming a little bit higher than that. The other devolution of power is certainly the EU. And I predicted that for a long time. And the reason for that is not because I'm so smart. It's because when I was in France in the 80s and I watched my family transfer the franc into the EU, I said, this is bizarre. I don't know what's behind the EU. I don't know what kind of currencies they have. Uh, at least with the franc, we understood it had a historical precedence, rightfully or wrongfully, with World War One, Two, and all of that. But when I saw the transformation, and then I started studying a little bit more about the theory of the EU, I said, uh-oh, this is a airy-fairy theory by the French again, who after World War Two, some of the socialist theoreticians said, oh, in order to avoid another war with Germany, We've had two major wars. Why don't we integrate and become interdependent? That's a very nice idea, French. <laughs> but it's it's always been the French and the Germans since exactly. the beginnings of history. It's like, how is anyone surprised? That's exactly right, Adam. And what in effect happened is, whoa, surprise, Germany became the leading industrial nation of the EU. Oh, I, they don't have to go to war. They just produce more efficiently. They're more effective. You don't have to spend 80% of your income to go to France, where it does nothing. Yeah, you know, France is in a devolution of power. Uh, Macron 
has never been involved in the military national security. He's a product of the Rothschild family. Although his two parents are well-known physicians, he's never accomplished anything. So what is France doing now? It's falling apart. While Macron is talking about great ideas, the French basic barely can make a living in France. So you have a devolution of power there. My suspicion is that different parts of France will break apart, as you saw in Spain. The hmm. Catalan, when you go to Barcelona, you and I know the Catalans do not see themselves as Spanish. No. You say to the Catalan, listen, you're Spanish, they'll throw you out. And outside of the Catalan, people view them as like, you're not really a part of us. That's correct. And so you have Valencia, you have Catalan, you have all the parts of Spain. Then you have Portugal that now I think the Chinese are underwriting, but they're in terrible shape. Greece is in terrible shape. You have Italy, who's, that's in terrible shape. So you have those Italians who come from Milan. They're the more educated ones, presumably, because they're in the northern part of Italy. But you have a devolution of power because Calabria has all the workers. And who came to America? They were Calabrese, and they became wonderful citizens. So you have a devolution all over the world. Africa is in complete disaster. Uh, friends of mine just came back from South Africa. I've worked in South Africa. I had property in South Africa in Stellenbosch and Franzhoek, and I sold it. And, and one leader after another were a disaster, and now they're totally corrupt. And, and what you're seeing in all of Africa is a huge unemployment problem that none of the countries can solve. So there are devil, there's a lot of devolution of problem that the power that will come to an anarchic form. And I don't wish that. And I hope I'm wrong. But a lot a lot of this devolution comes from monetary uh, changes. Uh, I went through the um, uh, through the integration. Uh, I lived there at the time. I saw the Dutch Gilder you know, turn into a euro. Uh, interestingly enough, France still mints and controls uh, the franc in, uh, I think, maybe seven or eight African countries. Um, right. But it appears to me that the true ruler is um, the Bundesbank uh, of Germany. They will determine what happens with Europe. And right now, it just seems like they have, they're out of options. There's no, there's a, you know, negative interest rate. It's, it seems, it, it, there's nowhere to go but in the wrong, in the down direction. That's a good point you just mentioned about the negative interest rates. Part of that has to do with the fact that the United States is in an economic war with China. And in effect, people are very frightened of the volatility of the markets. And as you know, I do day trading. And what you're seeing is that volatility makes people scared. So they go into the T-bill. So we have an inversion of the T-bill rates where the long-term rates are lower than the short-term rates, which often precedes a recession. But I'm not convinced we're going to head into a recession. What we're seeing more is that foreign capital is coming into our T-bills in order to make it a negative rate. And as you know, the rate is inversely related to the value of the stock or the price of the bond. So if you have a lower interest interest rate from five to one, you basically have a more valuable bond. But in reality, the bonds really don't, uh, f they don't furnish any amount of uh, creativity. As you said, there's no amount of progression in labor force. So our country has to be very careful. But as you said, it's not only currency. Remember, currency is a manifestation of our belief in a system where paper 
can represent something that we did or we have been doing. In other words, some asset. In reality, the paper isn't worth anything. Uh, when you really look at paper, whether it's the American dollar, you look at it and says, in God we trust. Well, without being facetious, uh, God, can you change this paper for whatever? And the answer is, there's no difference between the $1 bill and the $20 bill, other than the fact that psychologically we've been manipulated by our government to say, oh, the 20 means 20 times one. Well, not really, but that's the way we look at it. Sure. So in effect, we're going back to the notions of, you know, what is a real asset? Is gold a real asset, diamond? Not really. But then we have the survivalists who said, well, the hell with all of this. We're going to go eat food. We're going to grow food and we're going to grow our own stuff. And that's what appeals to them in terms of our relations. To bring this back to the situation in the United States, while everyone is running around uh, talking Epstein, Epstein, Trump racist, blah, 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 what is really happening and what do you think will take place in the 2020 election? What, what do you expect to see? Well, number one, if you were to tell me there would be 20 plus candidates in the Democratic Party, I would say what? Well, are even better, me? 20 of which none is, is well, almost none are qualified. <laughs> They're all well, dumb. That's correct. I mean, when you have Biden, who really does have some, you know, issues of intelligence and cognition, I'm not going to get into personality fact, but he, he has a problem. He had a problem in the past. He had pra a plagiarism. He's not articulate. He can't formulate Well, that's anything. why he was chosen to be Obama's vice president. He was just, don't right. talk too much, Joe, and you'll be, you look great. Correct. And- Honestly, it, if, if Trump doesn't win, that would be a surprise to me. I see him winning again, and, and my hopeful desire is that he will resolve this economic crisis with China because he does have a strong relationship with Xi Jinping. Jinping needs to have an economic uh, treaty with the United States, and Right now, Trump will decide, is he going to have a North Korean treaty? So he's waiting. And what he's waiting for is whether the, the Xi Jinping or the North Korean Kim Jong-un are hurting enough. And once they hurt enough, he will make that concession. Well, th this, this it, recent, um, what, uh, what the Wall Street pundits call, uh, he blinked. Uh, which, of course, sent the market up uh, just yesterday. What do you, uh, how do you evaluate that? What actually happened there? Well, what happened is he said, look, correctly, I do not want to be involved in something where supposedly toys and uh, phones and telecommunication is going to be hampered. I want a good Christmas and all that. I don't think he blinked. What basically he did was to say, okay, I'm not continuing this tariff all the way into December. We'll hold it off and we'll see what happens. And we'll see if Xi really understands that I'm giving him a break. But at the same time, uh, the tariff is putting a burden on our people. And he, want, he wants to make sure he gets reelected. So he's beginning to understand the right. tariff has nothing to do with China as much as it has to do with our own people and our own uh, economy. And so that's what he's, he's really releasing the tariff because correctly the businessmen said, look, we can't continue this. We, we don't need uncertainty in production. I need to know where we're going, how we're going in the next five years. And that's 
That's what they need. And that's what Trump has given them. In terms of the election itself, we'll see what happens. But remember, as I said, the devolution of power isn't all that. It, it doesn't mean the president is going to be all that important. As we continue to go on, what's happening is DeSantis becomes more important. The governors of the states become more important. And then when you live in a place where I live, and I don't know about Texas, the commissioners become more important. As you have less and less centralized power, the local politicians who literally provide the garbage, the water, mm -hmm. that counts. And that's where America is really ahead of the game. And that's where most people who do not understand America do not really understand that we're not just a centralized power, but we're really quite large. Uh, it takes four time zones to get through our country in 10 days by car. In the Soviet or the Russia, it takes 11 time zones, but Russia is in such bad shape that they're in problems. You and run out of gas, you couldn't get it, get from one side to the other in Russia. <laughs> no, I wouldn't go by a car. Uh, that's a problem. But Putin so, has a problem, and so, he's going to have to deal with his problem. Anything you want to say about Russia uh, specifically? It's kind of off the map now since I guess uh, it's not important, so the media won't won't cover anything. Well, I like Russia. I mean, I've been involved with the takedown of the Soviet Union, but don't forget the Russian people are quite formidable. The the, the war in World War II was really won by, by the, the Russians. By Russians who lost, what, 20 million, 20 million people fighting that. And hit it on the head. And recently, although there hasn't been a major coverage, it's a terrible situation occurred in Russia where 7,000 acres of land in Siberia are burning yeah. mercilessly. And, and Trump did offer to help, and I'm glad he did. But again, uh, Russia is not, it's a poor country. Putin is trying to consolidate his power, but it, it's not going to continue. The Russians are formidable people. The, young, the youth of Russia needs to have a decentralized power, and eventually they will get it. And so this, and this is the one thing that, that bothers me as a United States citizen, someone who loves the United States. Um, I see the youth of other countries using the technology and the tools they have at their disposal in much more intelligent ways. I think it's spread faster. I see um, the young generation in the United States completely um, r removing themselves from any, as you said, local, local government, how important that is in our structure, but just completely slipping away, going into culture, going into entertainment, and disengaging, even though they have all the tools at their fingertips. It's an interesting observation. I, again, I'm in a rural area in the South. I see a little bit different. Uh, what I see here, the young kids are eager to learn. The poorer you are, the more you will try to get out of that poverty or the situation you're in. So I see quite a lot of very talented uh, people in, in the north central area of Florida who go to, let's say, uh, community college. And, and I think the community college is really doing a great job. In a year and a half, you can become a nurse or whatever, a technician. So in a way, I see it a little bit different. I have uh, great faith in the youth of this country. Number one, many of them don't have to go to college anymore. The notion that you had to go to school, or you had to become a doctor, that's antiquated. That's finally uh, coming through, yes. It's coming through. And, and so you have these young, unusual people who have their own skills and set of skills 
And they sit down and guess what? They're building a little company called IT, information technology, and they're becoming quite good at it. And so the question is, can we support it? Can we have enough jobs for the young people? I don't know. And, and that's what concerns me more. If the millennials in the big cities want to drop out, that's their prerogative. But I don't see that in, in the South. I see kids who are eager, they're hungry, they're willing to work, and they're willing to earn low wages, but they want to get out of this situation. What I see as a major problem for us in all the countries is that as we're entering into the IT era in a much more sophisticated way, you have 50,000 workers, let's say, for Amazon. Where are the jobs? You know, where, right. are gonna, where are the jobs for these young people? So that concerns me a lot more. And that would be a, a, a more serious problem for Trump to handle in terms of I want to see infrastructure. Quite frankly, he came in on an infrastructure uh, uh, bill, and I, I want to see that infrastructure. That, because that could put a lot of people to work and just physical oh, bodies working. Exactly. That would be millions of people yeah. to work. And, and it would help our economy out. And we're still a healthy economy. And I don't want to uh, I don't think we're going to go into a recession despite the inversion of the yield curve. So, that's- well, and then just as, as, as a final topic, um, I think even even the Trump administration may be starting to understand this concept of modern monetary theory. Uh, and actually, the Trump tax cuts kind of prove that it works um, you know, you you print up another seven hundred billion dollars, and uh, the the interest rate went down. It's like it's complete the inverse of uh of what we call uh the Austrian economics or whatever it is. It it seems that the printing press, which everyone ultimately that's what the presidency and the Congress is about, is who has control of printing, um, appears to not affect our economy in in many visible ways when we just print up more. Well, that's true. So what happens is there, you know, economists are like psychiatrists. We can make all kinds of predictions, but it doesn't mean that's correct. Uh, The reality is such is that we've never been in a situation like this. They claim it's close to 2008 when we had a recession. Not exactly. As you said, there was more money printed and we had a tax cut. But quite frankly, our unemployment is so low that it's very hard to find anybody to work in any area. So basically, you know, economic theory to me has always been what I call a heuristic model. It's it's pie in the sky concepts. Mm-hmm. If you want to predict there's going to be recession, sure, you could say it all year long. There was an inversion of the yield curve starting a year ago where the long-term uh, bond rates were, were lower than the two-month bond rates. But that happened a year ago, and it's been going on for this period of time. And now suddenly we're going to have a definite recession. Not exactly, boys, because the markets, again, go off of the headlines and they're far more volatile than they were in the past. And that's part part of the what I call the devolution of power. The power is no longer in the J.P. Morgans, the Goldman Sachs or any of them. As you've seen, their stocks went down quite a lot today. And the minute you you go into lower bond yields, these boys get into trouble. And and so money becomes a disposable uh, element for most of these banks. They're going to be in trouble. I wouldn't be surprised that many of them go bankrupt. Well, like, I, that's interesting you say that. I, I have a source of former Deutsche Bank uh, uh, executive, and he told me just a couple of weeks ago, he says, Deutsche Bank, Goldman Sachs is next. That's correct. 
And, and as you and I know, who would have known Deutsche Bank would have gone under? And the answer is it was very simple because they didn't market the market. They loaned out to Jared Kushner or Trump whatever billions they wanted, and they didn't want to bring it back in. That's their problem. But Goldman Sachs will be next. J.P. Morgan will be next. And so what happens is you have smaller companies that are like myself – most of my background was really as a serial entrepreneur, where I started up as an angel investor, not a VC, a venture capitalist, but started up with small amounts of money, sitting down with a bunch of guys in Northern Virginia to fund different kinds of companies. And some of them were the original software companies. You do well or you don't do well. But that kind of relationship is what we look for in the United States. The people like yourselves and me, willing to take the risk, willing to fail, willing to start again. And that's about 4 to 10% of our population. It's never going to be more. Right. But if you worry about your pension fund, that's not what we want. <laughs> well, but, that's for we, but that's how we control the intelligence community. You know, oh, I want to be in there 20 years and I'll get my pension. Good luck, buddy. That's <laughs> pensions there. But it doesn't exist. Well, for sure, uh, the decentralized mindset of the, uh, of the United States I think has a, uh, offers us great potential for the future. Well, Adam, think of it. Your governor in Austin, Texas, has become increasingly more powerful over the years that I've heard about Texas, as mm -hmm. you know. I mean, University of Texas now has the Bush uh, Institution, Baker Institution. They didn't go back up to Harvard. They didn't oh, go no. back. Well, half, half of the CIA and intelligence retires to Austin. It's unbelievable. They're all Bobby Inman's right down the road. Uh, we've got the entire uh, Air Force uh, cyber $8 billion command that's just come in. And it's spook heaven here. Well, the question is, do you have taxes? No. Well, no, of course not. That's why Google is building a 5,000-person office building. Of course. It, and, and these are the dummies. I, I say that with respect. These are not the engineers. These are, these are the people who do customer support, uh, reading through transcripts, uh, administrative. These are, you know, these are lower-level tech workers who are shipped in here for exactly that. No taxes. Well, you don't have to be a genius. I'm in Florida. There are no taxes. Guess where the hedge fund boys are moving yeah, to? Yeah, they're all. Yep, exactly. exactly. They come out of New York. Guess which state is in trouble? New York. Yeah. Illinois, Michigan, all the those states that had industrial capacity, they're gone. And the labor pool that's there is not, it doesn't have any work. So basically, you're seeing the growth coming in, devolving in, from the centralized point and also devolving from the state down to the local level. So you go to Texas, you go to Austin. That's where you're going to have your intellectual center. You go to, uh, you know, wherever El Paso, whatever else. I mean, for me, Texas was Lubbock because uh, Buddy Holly was from there. So I knew one. Lubbock is very different from Austin. I have no idea. I've never been there, but again, my reference points were where yeah. did these guys come from? So. Yes. Yeah. Well, yeah, Austin, yeah. Uh, most Texans will say, yeah, you live in Austin. That's not really Texas. And to a large degree, they're right. I, I agree. I like our governor, Abbott. Uh, I think our mayor Adler is a, a total moron, and uh, I I let him know that as often as I can because of his policy, mainly on homelessness or the unhoused, which I think is more of a mental health and addiction problem than just another another vehicle to build some affordable housing, which just gentrifies and 
and I, gentrification may or may not be good. I mean, there's there's arguments on both sides, but they, the thing is, they have it so good, they don't care. People are on the streets. That's that's the observation. Well, look at all you have to do is look at San Francisco, the yeah. home base of Nancy Pelosi and Governor Newsom, and ask how is it that you had eighty five thousand homeless people in tents with feces on the ground and you've done nothing about it, and then you go out and pontificate, Miss Pelosi, on how we should be living. It's absurd, and so that absurdity. It's like the Epstein absurdity. It just goes back to deal with. But she doesn't care. She's been there God knows how many, 20 plus years. Her father was in a mob in the Maryland. Her brother was the mayor of Baltimore. And so what you have is <clears throat> corruption and competence just continuing. And, and honestly, I would say, listen, it's time for the youth to take over. You don't want 76 year old and I'm that age. You don't want us as leaders. Get rid of us. Get rid of the Bernie Sanders. Get rid of all those people. And let's see what the youth can do. And that's where I stand. Well, uh, I would love to uh, pick up this conversation whenever appropriate for uh, another time. And I think the best way you just let me know that this is one of the few times you said uh, we should talk. Let's do a show. And I love that. And I'm always open, uh, open invitation. Uh, and I really appreciate uh, the opportunity just to chat with you and to share that with everybody, Steve. I think it's very valuable. Well, I've enjoyed it, Adam. And, you know, you and I have a special relationship and I enjoy your audience. I think it's great what you do. And, and God bless you and your audience. I think that's wonderful. And I'll be back. Yes, sir. And on that, I will leave you with the song that uh, was discussed earlier. Little Tommy James and the Shondells. Money, money. Thanks again, Steve. Oh, oh, oh.